Hello and welcome. This is the Lend Hoping Nothing podcast. I'm Michael Humphreys and happy to be talking to you today. Today we're going to be talking about why usury is evil. Originally I was planning on talking about my new polity article uh, responding to Jacob Imam and Mark Barnes on shareholding, but that hasn't been published yet. So we're back to usury. So uh, if you haven't uh, listen to episode one and two, I would encourage you to, because that kind of gives a lot of the background. In episode one, laid out the traditional definition of usury, and in episode two, really discussed what the uh, what the terms in that definition mean, and specifically the mutual, because that is the central uh, problem with usury, the central way of understanding why it is evil. So let's kind of get into, uh, assuming that you've listened to that, let's kind of get into the question of why usury is evil. So the current state of the problem is that there are a lot of different positions on what usury is and whether it is evil. So um, as I'm sure most people are aware, in sort of the non-Catholic culture, uh, usury is just seen as sort of excessive interest. And I looked up the Blackwell commentary on, on uh, English common law, and there he talks about usury as just a rent, or interest, I should say, as just rent on money in a loan. And so usury takes on this aspect of being too much rent or too high of a price. And that's kind of the, the general milieu of, of what usury is considered now. Within Catholic circles, we're kind of bound by Catholic doctrine. And so uh, there's a couple of different areas that have been I've tried to categorize on how they treat usury. So the one big one is usury just isn't present today, or it's extremely rare. So Thomas Woods, in his book, The Church and the Market, just basically says that, yeah, Catholic doctrine is true, but it's based on these more or less implicit or unknown assumptions, uh, economic assumptions. And so since these assumptions no longer hold, the usury doctrine is true, but it's just entirely irrelevant today. I think that that's obviously problematic because it destroys all at least all moral doctrine. Because if you look at the the Council of Vienna, Vix Pervenet, what all of the the doctors and, and canonists have been saying for hundreds of years, it's very clear and they're very categorical about it. There's no way of kind of slipping in these unknown and implicit assumptions. But if you could, then who knows? Every moral doctrine could be just based on untrue, implicit assumptions. So I think that's obviously false. Now, Woods is basing it partially on his uh, Austrian economics position. And so a similar person is Father Thomas Devine, who writes in his book, Interest. And he really defends uh, taking interest on loans as related to time preference. And the issue here is that with time preference, the reason that time preference is supposed to work is because we desire things 
now more than later. So having money now is more valuable than having it later. And so if we loan someone some money, the money we receive later is worth less. And so we should receive more in compensation to the balance of community of justice. So that's kind of his argument. And then uh, Divine says, well, usury in the tradition is just the oppression of the poor. Under modern conditions, it just doesn't happen because there's an objective rate, which, you know, the lender can't stipulate to the weaker, poor person. And it's a more impersonal transaction. So uh, he suggests that these contribute to the fact that the lender can't take advantage of the, the, the borrower, which I think is just manifestly false, as many people have seen. Uh, as a note, time preference is condemned by Innocent XI as an excuse for usury. Very explicit. Another kind of category of Catholics is trying to reconcile the usury doctrine with modern economics. So Brian McCall, in his book, uh, The Church and the Usurers, really tries to take up, I would say, Belloc's position and tries to reinforce it with the scholastic tradition. And so if you're unfamiliar with that, it's the idea that loans for consumption, so you're you're going, you're borrowing to consume something. Those are the loans where usury is present, but loans for production are real capital loans, and so those can involve licit profit. And so, um, unfortunately, I think Brian or Doctor McCall really confuses the ancient arguments with that position. So uh, he's saying that when the good bought with the money lent is consumed, that's where the profit is useless. But the ancient arguments say that when the thing lent is consumed, it's useless for if you have received profit. And that's an important distinction because when you borrow money and you spend it, whether it's for a sandwich or for something productive like machinery, you are consuming that money or alienating it. And so by the ancient arguments, that would still be usury. Uh, another figure is Dr. Stork. Uh, he's written a couple of articles on this, and I think he really tries to give uh, the ancient idea of extrinsic titles some more teeth. So he tries to uh, pull back and say, well, um, you know, this extrinsic title has more stringent uh, conditions on it. And so, uh, unfortunately, I think he still misses what usury is because uh, he thinks savings accounts are usurious, for example. Uh, and so, I would argue that savings accounts are not mutuum contracts and therefore are uh, ipso facto non-usurious. Uh, another kind of group is, is people who see usury everywhere in, in the modern economy. And this I would kind of identify with Heinrich Pesch, who was a, a German Jesuit, or yeah, German Jesuit. And he, while he recognized usury in, in, in loans, 
He tried to come up with this general sin of usury was taking any surplus in any business transaction. And so uh, I think this is just completely wrong. Um, and it's very unfortunate. Some people reading Heinrich Paschbeck I've, I've seen will refer to capitalism as usuryism because of this. Because any surplus uh, it is, a, is usury. Um, and, and typically this position, I've also seen it among some Irish uh, priests um, writing in the 19th century. Uh, they'll typically uh, lean on canon law, the old, old canon law, to reinforce this. Because a lot of uh, Gratian's commentary and passages were very vague and said things like, well, anything over what was given was usury, and so forth. Uh, so some other positions is just that one of the big ones, big confusions, is that usury depends on the nature of money, and it doesn't. It depends on the nature of the, or depends on the nature of the contract. There's two different ways this argument can go, is that people will say, oh, well, usury depends on the nature of, the, on the nature of money, and so the nature of money's changed. And now it's capital, and they'll even point to um, figures uh, and saints who said, "Well, uh, like Saint Bernadine said that uh, money has the seminal character of capital, and so they'll take that as support for saying, "Oh, well, money is capital, and therefore it's you can rent it in a loan." Others will swerve the other way and say, "Oh, yes, it depends on the nature of money." And the nature of money has not changed. <clears throat> and so loans of money are always useless. And so this this can go again towards that position of well, all loans are, are usurious um, for profit. As I noted before, the definition of usury is exacting any profit on a mutuum contract. And this is very clear in the tradition. <clears throat> and so Usury always starts with the mutuum contract. And some of the classics will say um, it's only in the mutuum. And when we see it in, uh, you know, Scarecrow's other contracts, the mutuum is either present there uh, virtually and implicitly. So um, that, that kind of helps clarify. So even when we're talking about like other contracts, like a sale, for example, we're actually talking about at least a mutuum somewhere in there. So from here, I want to kind of look to Aquinas especially to, to lead the way. And there's a lot of confusion over what Aquinas means. So I think the, the most clarifying passage in Aquinas on the nature of, on the nature of usury it is actually hidden in a response to an objection in the Demalo, which is a book that people rarely uh, read or cite. So um, I have the, uh, the Richard Regan translation here. I've looked at the Latin and I've adjusted a little bit because I think there's some obvious problems with it. Uh, like he, he translates... Uh, usura as interest taking, which uh, just seems very strange to me. 
Um, and there's also some other things in here that I, I corrected. So um, this is going to be DeMalo question 13, article 4, response to the 15th objection. Quote, as the philosopher says in the politics, things can have two uses, one specific and primary, and the other general and secondary. For example, the principal and proper use of shoes is to wear them, and the secondary use is to exchange them for something else. And conversely, the specific and primary use of money is as a means of exchange, since money was instituted for the purpose for this purpose. And the secondary use of money can be for anything, for example, as security or for display, unquote. So here, the important thing that Aquinas recognizes is that things can have more than one use. And so what the way you're allowed to use them is, is determined by the contract. It's not determined by the nature of the thing. So the fact that things can be used in multiple ways really destroys the idea that usually depends on the nature of the good because you can use money in exchange or you could use it as he says uh, in dis as security or for display so but going on he clarifies this so quote and exchange is a use consuming as it were, the substance of the thing exchanged, insofar as the exchange alienates the thing from the one who exchanges it. And so if persons could uh, grant their money to others for a use as a means of exchange, which is specific of money, and seek a return for the use over and above the principle, this will be contrary to justice. Unquote. So this is where usury comes in. So, quote, but if persons lend their money to others for another use in which money is not consumed, there will be the same consideration as regarding the things that are not consumed in their very use, things that are illicitly rented out and hired, unquote. So here, the difference is the manner in which the thing is granted. So you're either granting it in such a way that it might be consumed, or you're granting it in a way that it might not be consumed. So if you grant the thing so that someone can go sell it, and here, you know, he talks about money, but you can also think about, you know, I don't know, some Air Jordans. They're really expensive. You give them to someone so they can go sell it. That would be this sort of first where we're talking about granting a thing so that it might be consumed, and that's the mutuum. In the second place, we talked about um, granting it so that it might not be consumed. Like, so you can rent shoes to be worn. Maybe somebody's renting Air Jordans so they can look cool and, and wear them for a while. Or another example I've seen with money for display is that people will sort of rent a wad of money to someone so that they can get into an auction. So they have to show that they have so much money that they can use, but they're not actually going to use that money to go buy things. They're just trying to, you know, show it off to be able to get into the auction, for example. So the interesting thing here 
is that in the second case, he talks about um, there will be the same consideration as regarding the things that are not consumed in their very use. And he mentioned this in the body of the answer. And he says, for things granted such they not be consumed in use, he says, since use does not consume such things, strictly speaking, the thing itself or its use can be separately leased or sold, or both together can be alienated. And so this kind of brings up a few different types of contracts. So there, and hopefully this helps kind of make things a little clearer. So when the, the thing and its use are sold together, that is a sale. So you're immediately granting full ownership to someone else. And that's a, a full transfer. Um, when you grant just the use, that is um, what's called a commodatum. Or, um, and you can think of this as like borrowing a library book. Like you have to return the exact same library book. And if it's destroyed, you typically have to return. Um, you know, you're liable for returning something similar. Um, so, you know, they grant it to you for a time and then you have to return the same thing. When that involves, that can involve a charge, which is a lease or in Roman law, it's a locatio. That involves a payment for that use. So when you grant the thing, you're granting what's called a usufruct, which is a property right to the exclusive use and enjoyment of the thing. So you get all of the benefits out of it during that time. And so you kind of take physical possession of it, but the borrower or the lender still holds the civil possession, like it's still his, and he still has the ownership of it. So that when you return it to him, you're just physically giving him back what is his, and you're paying him for the use of it. So that that's kind of the equality of justice there, is that you're actually paying um, for the use, which he's, he's granted you a part of his ownership. Um, the, the final one, which is really interesting, is that... Uh, Aquinas suggests that you could grant the ownership but not the use, um, which, is, which is a fascinating idea coming out of the Middle Ages because in modern terms we call this a leaseback, where, and it happens especially in commercial real estate, where I sell a building to someone else, but I want to retain the use of it for a while. So maybe as I you know, transition my, my company or my uh, employees out of that office. Or maybe I want to lease it for like 10 years, but get that that liability of that office off my, my balance sheet. Um, and so that's called a leaseback. A similar idea was the census contract. Uh, and I won't get too deep into that, but um, in, in another book, uh, which I don't have immediately at hand, uh, a lawyer kind of looked at the census contract specifically in England and suggests that this was kind of a primitive leaseback uh, contract. So 
So that, those are the, the considerations when the thing is not granted. Um, uh, not granted to be consumed. It, it can, you can either sell it, the ownership, the ownership with the use or just the use. But when you grant the thing so that it might be consumed in a loan, this is where the mutuum comes in. And so the, the lender grants the whole ownership. So because the thing can be consumed, the borrower has to have sort of that authority and that right to consume or alienate it. And so here consume takes on a more broader sense than sort of physical consumption of like eating food. It, it as he says, it has to do with, it kind of goes out of the possession of the borrower. Um, so that can include sort of, you know, physical eating or um, morally or juridically like spending or exchanging. And so uh, because the borrower has that right, he has to receive the full ownership because if he didn't have the full ownership, then he would be violating the rights of another because that other person who had the ownership uh, would be um, would have to uh, consent to it, I guess. So the borrower receives the full ownership of the thing. And part of what this entails is that the lender has no property. He has no claim to anything, except he has the promise of the borrower for return. And that is one of the big differences between a lease contract and the mutual, because in the lease, the lender retains the ownership and he grants the use and his payment is for the use. But in the mutual, the lender has nothing. And so when he charges for the loan, he is charging for something he doesn't have, namely the use of the thing. So in the lease, he's charging for the use because he has retained the ownership. But in the mutuum, he has given away the full ownership. And so... Uh, when he charges something, he charges for something that doesn't exist. And this is what Aquinas means when he says that usury is charging for something that doesn't exist. And there's a couple of different places where he clearly makes, he makes it clear that he's talking about this use, this use of fruit that the lender, that doesn't exist because the lender is granted the full ownership, both um, the substance and the use. Um, and so charging is charging for something he didn't have any claim to. And so um, another way to think about this is that the lender does have a claim to receive the ownership back. And so when he receives that, he receives everything he gave. And so demanding more is demanding kind of the ownership back twice. So those are the two ways that Aquinas kind of talks about this, selling what doesn't exist and then selling the same thing twice. So the way to think about that is selling what doesn't exist, his right to the use of the thing, which he doesn't have as soon as he enters the mutuum contract, or uh, charging for the same thing twice. So trying to receive back the ownership and then 
the ownership again, essentially. So this this is the evil of, of usury. He's demanding more than he's owed. He he's demanding more than um more than he has a claim to. Because he doesn't have this claim to the use. So the way to think about usury is it is kind of a sort of theft, uh, or it's at least kind of in that same genus, because he's taking what doesn't belong to him. Now, it's not exactly theft, because the borrower in, is in some sense like handing it over to him, but it's very much along those lines, and that's the church fathers talked about, uh, usury as a sort of theft, and yeah, that's very clear. Another way to think of this is as a sort of slavery, or, you know, again, in kind of that genus of slavery, because since the lender really has no claim to anything, any property, his only claim is against the person of the borrower. And so when he makes a claim to more, he is essentially treating that person as rentable property. And so, because that's all he has a claim to. And so he's claiming to be able to sell the, the, the person of the borrower or to charge rent on him. So those are two different ways of kind of, uh, I'll call them like intuition pumps to kind of see the evil of usury. So why is this important? So there's a, there's a couple of kind of implications of this that I, I'd like to discuss. And I'll talk about this more in a future episode. But one of the implications of this is that the mutuum is always an act of charity because it is evil to take more than the principal on any mutuum. So you always have to be doing it out of love for your friend instead of for some sort of economic motive to make some money out. Another thing here is that it emphasizes the dignity of the person. So, you know, we we see a, in modern society, people will talk about debt slavery. And what this says is, no, people are not to be treated this way. People are not to be treated as property. And so that's another way of kind of thinking about why usury um, is important. But... I'll really talk about the importance of usury uh, in another episode, but that kind of sums up why I think is the core argument for why usury is evil. And so I think we'll wrap it up here for today. So I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, if you have any questions, um, anything that, um, any complaints or anything I got wrong, please let me know. Or if you just want to continue the conversation, you can email me at lendhopingnothing at gmail.com, uh, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. So it was great talking to you today, and thank you for listening.